This is Music in the Church, a podcast that brings you insight into today's diverse worship landscape by connecting the dots between beliefs and practices so that you can have a happier, healthier ministry. Hi, I'm Crawford Wiley, an organist in Wauwatosa, Wisconsin. And I'm Sarah Bariza, a researcher and church musician currently living in Cincinnati. Today, we're kicking off a series on virtuosity in church music. There are lots of ways that people think about musical skill in church services. In one church, a bunch of fast scales on the piano could be heard as worshiping God with your God-given abilities and giving your best to God. But in another church, the same thing could be heard as showing off or entertainment and a distraction from worship. So in this series, we'll hear about different viewpoints on virtuosity and what these perspectives mean for the music people make in church services. First up today, I'm talking with Dr. Joshua Busman, a professor at the University of North Carolina in Pembroke. He's talking about amateurism, amateurishness, and authenticity in evangelical worship music, with a big dose of Luther and Calvin, and how their different understandings of music have cast really long shadows over how we think about music in Protestant churches today. If you'd like to see the resources Josh and I mention in this interview, you can check out the show notes for this episode at musicandthechurch.com slash 18. What's the particular story of the area that you're talking about? So my research tends to center on evangelical communities uh, in the American Southeast. So I'm sort of looking at two legacies or lineages of religious tradition, one of them being this broader sort of Protestant ethos, uh, American Protestantism that's going to have an inflection on this question of virtuosity that we're thinking about. Um, And then more specifically, uh, the sort of American evangelicalism that's forged in the modernist fundamentalist controversies at the beginning of the 20th century, and then in the rise of a particularly politically savvy form of evangelicalism that begins, uh, say, in response to the civil rights movement and uh, in the turmoil of the 1960s. So uh, those are the, the sort of twin or, or triple legacies that I'm thinking about and, and the stories that are impacting the people that I'm talking about. And who are these people and where will they be making music? The research that I've done has primarily centered on um, mega churches, and because of my particular interest in the way that media functions to connect and facilitate church involvement, a lot of the churches that I looked at were mega churches that had multiple campuses that were using media somehow to connect those multiple campuses. So these were churches primarily in the uh, Triangle area of North Carolina, Raleigh, Durham, Chapel Hill area. And they were churches that had multiple sites on a Sunday morning um, and were using simulcast sermons or simulcast music uh, or a mixture of live and simulcast material uh, in order to create one overarching church identity um, that was divided geographically around the region. And what kind of music would they be using? So the music is predominantly going to be a sort of pop and rock styled music that's coming out of the Jesus People movement of the late 60s and early 70s. It's a, uh, it's, you know, we're going to see predominantly pop 
instruments, you know, acoustic and electric guitars, electric keyboards, drum set, electric bass, um, usually some sort of team of vocalists who are there to encourage singing and to sort of mirror the type of singing that is expected out of the congregation, and usually singing contemporary uh, worship songs, uh, the kinds that you would see on the CCLI, uh, Christian uh, Copyright Licensing International charts, uh, and singing songs that would have lyrics projected on screens uh, as opposed to singing out of a hymnal, say. Even when they're singing hymns, they're going to be singing them off a screen. This series of podcast episodes, we're talking about virtuosity and skilled musicianship and potentially what it looks like to show off in a particular setting. Sure. Like what is good virtuosity, what is not good virtuosity. Right. So what kind of values did you find around virtuosity in these churches in the Triangle area? Well, I think two things that I sort of think about in related to virtuosity, and this sort of relates to these twin legacies that I was talking about of, of sort of the broader legacy of Protestantism and then some of the uniquely 20th century legacies of, of fundamentalism and, and evangelicalism. Um, I think that in uh, a lot of Protestant traditions, there has been an anxiety about performance as a, as a category that goes all the way back to uh, the Reformation. There's a, a great vignette in the writings of Andreas Karlstadt, who is, for lack of a better term, sort of Martin Luther's dissertation advisor. Um, <laughs> and he describes the conundrum as essentially being that in order to honor God properly with worship, we would want to have a performance that is of the highest possible quality. In fact, we can't imagine a context in which we would need a higher quality performance than a performance in which the primary audience is God. However, in order to execute such a performance, our attention would have to be so fully devoted to executing the performance properly that we would end up canceling out our ability to focus on worshiping uh, because we would be so fully immersed in trying to execute the performance uh, properly. So there's this double bind that is sort of seeded into the beginning of thinking about Protestant uh, worship in, in which focus on technical proficiency or skill is placed in contrast to focus on proper worship. The, these two categories are sort of separated out, that going that far back. So is Karlstadt talking about the performing musicians or also the congregation, this we here? That's, is that just the musicians? So he is actually talking about both. Oh. Um, he's primarily, at first, thinking through this as a problem for performing musicians. In the Lutheran tradition, there is much more uh, amenability to the idea of performed music, uh, obviously, with Bach being mm -hmm. the sort of preeminent example. Um, mm -hmm. And I, I would be happy to sort of talk about that in, in more detail. That actually, I think, has to do with the way that people understand music as representative of a particular way that the world works. Um, but I, I think at first he is talking about that in terms of performing musicians and church musicians navigating this space. Um, but he comes to think through it, and some of the more radical reformers who come after him, uh, Melanchthon, and then of course the Swiss reformers, Zwingli, and eventually Calvin, come to think through that in much more radical terms, which is to say, we really have to apply this same level of almost asceticism to the congregation as we're applying to the church mm. musicians. So what does that mean for people today in these churches in the Triangle? What are the ramifications? 
Sure. So I think what this means is the role of church musicians as I uh, experience them both as someone who was attending these churches and as someone who was talking to parishioners and to uh, members of the church bands is the role of the church musician is essentially to become invisible. Right. If I am doing my job correctly as a church musician, then what I'm doing is I am vanishing and I'm vanishing in the act of creating a, a sort of profound connection between the congregation and God. So I am meant to be a, a pane of glass, if at all possible. And so the, the danger of virtuosity in that regard then is the possibility that by asserting oneself too fully in the demonstration of skill, that potentially you, you become cloudy as a, as a mediator between the congregation and God. So they see the, the cloudy glass rather than seeing God. That's correct. Mm. We've talked a little bit about the reasons that underpin these values. So I'm curious, like, what musicians do with that? Like, what does that mean for what they are actually doing on a Sunday morning or Sunday night or whatever? What does it sound like and what are they doing musically? So two things that immediately spring to mind, phenomenon that I found really uh, interesting. So the first one of these is the phenomenon of a, a variety of different resources, that, some of which are gathered under the title of band-in-a-box resources. And basically what these resources are is they are marketed to uh, worship leaders in these types of churches that are using uh, predominantly pop and rock styled music. And what they essentially consist in is a variety of different individual instrument tracks, what in the music industry often get called stem tracks, that sort of create a full mix for a particular song that you might use in a worship context, right? So if I were to buy the stem tracks for uh, a particular song from a website like Worship Tutorials, the person who runs the Worship Tutorials website actually uh, lives in Durham, used to live down the street from me, which is one of the reasons why I included them in, uh, in my research. But if I were to buy a set of their stem tracks, then basically what I have is individual audio tracks, maybe drums, bass, some synth pads, a lead guitar, a rhythm guitar, uh, etc., that I can use to fill out or supplement the band sound that I'm getting on a Sunday morning. So if I'm dealing with an amateur band of all volunteers, it may be the case that I can't get a bass player every Sunday, or I can't get a drummer every Sunday. And if that's the case, then I can use these stem tracks to supplement. But what's interesting is when you look at the rhetoric around these things, is very often these resources are designed to sort of square this impossible uh, circle that's been given to worship musicians, which is that they're not allowed to assert themselves in terms of skill because they risk clouding their ability to transparently mediate between the congregation and God, but they also aren't allowed to be the amateurs that they actually are, right? We can't, the, the other thing that would potentially cloud the pain, uh, as it were, would be if they were sort of completely unskilled, right? If they, if they did yeah, not have yeah. a baseline of proficiency. It's distracting so, to hear wrong notes. Yeah, exactly so. And so what these resources do is, uh, the way that I talk about it in my, in my research is, they, they give the ability to maintain amateurism without having amateurishness. Ah. Right? So, so in a lot of other musics that value amateurism, right, punk would be a prime example of this. 
right? Mm-hmm. Punk punk music values amateurism as an ethical commitment, right? It yeah. is not a value for a punk musician to have conservatory training. That would be a strike against you, not mm-hmm. a benefit uh, for your ability to play punk music properly because it would occlude your ability to access this sort of raw emotionality uh, that punk is predicated on. Uh, however, what goes along with that ethical value of amateurism is an aesthetic value of amateurishness, right? It is mm-hmm. valued aesthetically mm-hmm. in punk communities that you would play your instrument, quote unquote, badly in certain contexts, yeah. right? What's interesting about these worship bands is it's incredibly important that they remain amateurs, both sort of uh, aesthetically amateurs and uh, economically amateurs, right? Unpaid mm-hmm. volunteer members of the congregation, Mm -hmm. and yet uh, they are not allowed to have this amateurish approach to their instruments. So these band-in-a-box resources are a way Yeah, well, and they're not playing a repertoire that's particularly easy. Yeah, exactly so. Especially when they're playing, yeah, some of these more complex modern worship examples from Hillsong United or from Jesus Culture, right? These are very complex, multi-layered recordings that they're being asked to duplicate. Uh, And of course, that's further exacerbated by the fact that the parishioners that they're playing for know this music from the original recordings and are interacting with those original recordings as part of their devotional practice as well. So the bar has been set very, very high. Really high. Um, But they have to find this sort of unique way to approach that bar because of this value that's placed on amateurism and this this difficulty in displaying uh, musical skill. One other thing that I was going to say just before I forget is I think another place that's interesting where you can see this is actually in uh, the the section of the song that in a normal sort of secular pop song would often be a guitar solo, right? So uh, because the so many of these songs are borrowing this three and a half, four minute pop song format in order to uh, sort of structure the uh, worship experience. The, the guitar solo is an essential part of how that format works. So you need this moment of repose, you know, maybe between the second chorus and the bridge or, or when the chorus comes back in at the end. However, the guitar solo is almost always this sort of masculinized display of musical skill. That's primarily the function that it often serves in these secular recordings. And so what you get is these guitar solo sections that actually end up being incredibly inobtrusive sonically because the guitar player can't really show off what they can do. They just need to play something to fill the space or to open up the space for the congregation to inhabit that section uh, without asserting themselves too fully. I would imagine that in that section, like that's a moment of prayer, a moment of meditation. And if someone were to play this really flashy scale, then you'd be like, oh, whoa, and pay attention to that. Yes. And in some settings, that could be, oh, praise God for the wonderful gift of music and the skills that he has given this person. You know, it could be a good value. Yeah, I think, so two things on that, right? One is, I think that this is something that we've seen change pretty profoundly in the last 15 to 20 years. So I am someone who grew up in a Southern Baptist church in East Tennessee. And a Southern Baptist church that was a very early adopter of a lot of contemporary worship stuff. We were singing uh, Abide With Me and Shout to the Lord in the early 90s uh, off of overhead transparencies. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And 
at those services, typically, if you wanted to create that sort of particularly potent moment of emotional connection at the end of a song, for instance, or, or in between uh, choruses, what you would do is you would invite all of the instruments to drop out. And you would have this moment of sort of acapella singing or nearly acapella singing. There would be this moment uh, of some of what you were saying, meditation and prayerfulness and this sort of connection to those around you. What I found increasingly as I attended these sort of huge worship events, both at megachurches and at uh, parachurch organizations like the Passion Conference, is that mm -hmm. that moment for uh, evangelical, young evangelicals, college-age evangelicals who are going to these events now, you know, 20 years later, is not usually framed as where all the instruments drop out, but rather as a moment where all the instruments turn it up to 11. Uh, and you get this moment of sort of uh, overwhelming sonic presence that is meant to sort of mirror this overwhelming divine presence that you feel at that moment. Wow. So rather than turning the guitar down, we turn it up. <laughs> and they're doing it together so it's not like any one person is singled out. That's, that's correct. So it doesn't read as showing off. That's correct. It's like our collective spiritual response, something like that. Sure. And of course, that uh, idea of sort of having everything uh, ramp up in terms of volume and density and all of that for a moment of profound release or connection, um, that's something that we see very, very clearly in a lot of forms of electronic dance music. Right? I think this is something that mm, is yeah. um, maybe if if the... If the Jesus people music uh, of which this is uh, sort of a part of that lineage, but at the beginning, if the Jesus people music is really framed as an extension of the folk clubs and coffee house scene that's taking place among the counterculture on the West Coast, and during the 90s, if it's very much this crossover moment where we have uh, this... Uh, you know, this ambiguity of, are we talking about God or are we talking about a girl or a guy? Mm -hmm. This contemporary worship stuff is very much informed by the EDM experience and the sort of club experience uh, in terms of that as a model for collective music making and sort of being together in music in terms of these broad structures that are being utilized. So what would happen if, this is maybe taking it far afield, but like what would happen, oh, I'm a classically trained pianist, I can play really, really fancy list music, really fancy Rachmaninoff or whatever, and you want to minister as part of the worship team, and you have this huge skill set. You're Sure. You know, maybe you're an amateur in in that you're not paid, but you're, you're very skilled. How, how, how would that kind of ability, would that be utilized at all? I think of actually an interview that I conducted with a worship leader from the UK as part of my dissertation. And one of the things that she said was she actually did have uh, some conservatory training on the keyboard. And one of the things she talked about was that that conservatory training actually gave her insight into uh, why she should be more restrained and why she can and should delimit uh, the kinds of musical choices that she was making. So she was still allowed and, and encouraged to participate, but she was not encouraged uh, to sort of take these wild flourishes that perhaps she could have. Um, hmm. And she would frame it as, yeah, no, I know how to play all these more, you know, extended harmonies or how to fill maybe with uh, these uh, extended scales and patterns. But mm -hmm. all of that training allows me to see how in this context, 
the appropriate musical decision is to be more restrained, because that's my role here. I often talk about this actually in the 19th century uh, with my music history class when I talk about virtuosity. I think this is something you actually see in Chopin quite a lot, right? If you think of that Chopin E minor prelude, the, the melody is essentially one note, right? Ba ba ba, and then we go na 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 na. That's all we have for the whole melody. It's this incredibly restrained melody, and coming from a pianist and a composer that we know can dazzle us all the way up and down the keyboard. And part of the thrill I imagine of seeing Chopin play that piece, or part of the thrill of us in the in the present day of seeing a virtuosic pianist like Valentina Lasitza play that piece, is knowing that they could. Could be doing everything and instead they're doing so little. It's this virtuosity mm. of restraint um, that really is exciting because we know what they're capable of, if that makes sense. Yeah, that's that's how I feel whenever I hear a semi-professional choir sing four-part harmony out of a hymnal. Sure. Because there's nothing particularly difficult and it's still perfect and you know they could be doing so much more. Sure. Anything else particular that you'd like to talk about? So two other things that I just had thought about, um, one sort of related to the Luther stuff and then and then the other one maybe a, a more contemporary concern. So with the Luther stuff, I, I sort of hinted at this in one of my one of my answers, but I think one of the things that's interesting, and this is another tension that seems to sit right at the beginning of the Reformation and the conversations that are happening is really this tension of how people understand the role of music in Christian life. Um, and the tension I tend to frame as between Luther and his ilk, which are, you know, it's easy to forget, but Luther was an Augustinian monk. He was trained in this scholastic medieval uh, tradition. And someone like John Calvin, who never received a monastic training and was trained instead in this humanistic tradition, uh, studying the law in Paris. Um, and, and one of the differences that that makes is when Luther studied music in uh, his monastic training, he would have studied it as part of the quadrivium, which is, you know, this, this medieval regime of, of uh, education in which music was one of the four sciences, right? The importance of music coming from the ancient world through uh, Boethius and into the Middle Ages, the importance of music was it was sounded geometry. It was something that told us about the way the world was put together. The harmonic ratios that underpin the musical system are the same as the harmonic ratios that underpin, say, uh, the alignment of the planets and stars or the arrangement of the elements of the human body. Which is a way of saying that music is something that can tell us about God or at least God's world. Exactly so. So it makes sense of why Lutherans would be okay with having a purely instrumental counterpoint. Purely instrumental counterpoint can tell us something about God because music tells us how God put the world together, right? Mm -hmm. Whereas John Calvin in the humanistic tradition, he would have seen music as part of the trivium, which was this Renaissance humanist uh, educational program. And, and music in that instance would have not been a science. It would have been a subset of rhetoric. So in that case, music is only effective insofar as it helps to uh, increase the rhetorical power of an argument. So it's one of the reasons why he is so insistent on the idea that we should be singing, for instance, exclusively texts that come from the Bible, 
psalms and canticles. Because if we're going to embed these texts within ourselves with this powerful rhetorical tool of music, we should be careful which texts we're using, and we should probably default to using texts that come from scripture. This is reminding me of, of church fathers like St. Basil or St. John Chrysostom, who are t- talking about music almost in, well, actually in medicinal terms of like music as this spoonful of sugar to help the medicine go down, the medicine of doctrine. And music is a, is a pedagogical vehicle. Absolutely. Yeah. Calvin talks about music as, as a funnel that helps to embed these texts very deeply in our souls, um, which is very, very similar to the way church fathers talk about it. I believe that he that funnel image might actually come from Tertullian. I could be wrong about that. Mm. But anyway, he is very much talking about it in the way that, that a lot of the church fathers are talking about it. Yeah. The other thing that I was just going to mention is, uh, and I think this is relevant, especially uh, given some of the other conversations that uh, I think you may be having around this, which is that I think the place that I really started thinking much more critically about the issue of virtuosity was actually in grad school because of conversations that I was having fairly regularly with a colleague and a fabulous scholar named Will Boone, who was a couple of years ahead of me uh, in my PhD program. And Will was a guitar player who had been playing uh, in a a number of sort of large, black, uh, predominantly Kojic churches uh, around Durham, where we both lived. And it was so interesting because every time I felt like I would start to say something about musical skill, and I would say, you know, Will, in my fieldwork, I seem to be observing X, Y, and Z about the way musical skill is treated. Um, he would always say, well, that's not the way it ever works in the churches that I mm-hmm. spend time in. Yeah. Right? yeah. And, so, and so I think I was very – I started thinking about it more critically as I started to notice that, oh, yeah, this seems to be a fairly narrow subset of white evangelicalism that tends to think this way about virtuosity, right? Mm-hmm. Black evangelicalism yeah. doesn't tend to think this way. Pentecostalism doesn't tend to think this way. Uh, and yeah. mainline churches don't tend to think this way. So, yeah. so uh, thinking about sort of – what are the particular lineages and particular anxieties or frustrations that may have led to this way of thinking? Uh, I think for me, it was really brought into contrast when I started talking to people studying in uh, not far-flung traditions, but closely adjacent traditions yeah. that were just yeah. not the sort of unique corner of white evangelicalism that I was spending time in. Yeah, and, and listeners will hear next next week when I'm talking about music in fundamentalist Christianity, which is more conservative than the music that Josh is talking about. It's very much a Lutheran idea that musical excellence in the form of virtuosity can be a way to glorify God. Absolutely. Thank you so much for this conversation. Yes, of course. It was great to be here. Thank you, Sarah. Absolutely. That's it for this week's episode of Music and the Church. What's your experience with musical virtuosity in church services? Share your thoughts by emailing us at musicandthechurch at gmail.com or leaving a voicemail at 513-580-4282. If you enjoy this podcast, please leave us a review and rating wherever you listen to podcasts and share it with your friends. You can also subscribe to our monthly newsletter at musicandthechurch.com slash sign up. We'll be back next week.